0: Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books and Political Science podcast on the New Books Network. Today I'm joined by Matthew Longo, the author of The Politics of Borders, Sovereignty, Security, and the Citizen After 9-11. This book was published in 2018 by Cambridge University Press and pursues a line of investigation and analysis into our understanding of what the border really is, both theoretically and in actuality but I would be happy to have Matthew explain a little bit more of that to us as we discuss the politics of borders. So let me welcome Matthew Longo onto um, the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project.
1: Hi, thanks, Lily. So this project, I think like, you know, I guess everyone's first book came out of uh, the dissertation. And uh, as any reader will immediately note, it is a uh, a little bit of a strange bird at the outset because it is a, a political theory book, but that uses ethnography. And the origin story of that is a bit um, unique in the sense that, you know, I came out of uh, debates and I think very interesting um, conversations in political theory mostly about cosmopolitanism. That was sort of the initial spark for me. Um, I came out of the graduate program at Yale and had intended to, and did in fact, um, study with Shayla Benhabib, who uh, is a critical theorist, but who works uh, principally in, in the in the domain of, um, or actually, at, at the time was writing a lot about cosmopolitanism. I shouldn't, um, I shouldn't bracket her that way. And I got into in those debates, and in particular, the the border always jumped out at me as fascinating, but. Uh, in all of those arguments, whether it be about discussions of different kinds of federalisms or you know different kinds of contested sovereignties or overlapping sovereignties or uh you know transnational or, or international legal conceptions of what um, the polity should look like uh all of them always took the boundary or the border to be a uh, a thin jurisdictional line uh in that sense not that different from what it looks like on a map right where if you think of a map there's you know, country A and country B uh, run up against each other with a clear black line between them. You know, A and B will be different colors. One will be red and one will be yellow. And the border is just that. It's just the place where one state ends and another one begins. And uh, I think that makes total sense that a border we think of it that way, because it is also accurate in purely legal or juridical terms um, that a border is a thin line. But the problem is, is that when you see borders that way, more or less the only kinds of questions you can ask are whether or not they can be um, superseded, right? I mean, so the empirical question is about whether or not borders become more or less porous um, in terms of the amounts of goods and people that traffic through it. And the normative question ends up being about whether or not it's better to have sort of, you know, transnational systems of governance, for example, Um meaning that national law should be superseded by something that is cross-border, right? And uh, I was left sort of a little uh, flat-footed because the questions that I wanted to ask uh, didn't necessarily assume that the border was a thin jurisdictional line that could only be um, either kept intact or crossed. But I had intuitions mostly born of my own Travels, as I think everyone who's ever traveled, especially by land over a border, realizes, you know, borders are not necessarily just thin lines; are these very complicated spaces that are often wide zones with different kinds of uh, buildings and different kinds of rule and different kinds of authorities. And uh, I was not satisfied by, for example, in the critical theory literature writing on cosmopolitanism, or in the uh, more analytic political philosophy literature on the ethics of immigration. Uh, which once again asks about the right to exclude, assuming a certain kind of border as a binary. And so I started to want to to trouble the concept of a border by looking at it more institutionally. But to do this, uh, I had an intuition. This was about 2009 already – Which feels like a long time ago. You know, there was no way I could possibly have known that by the time this book would come out, it would be timed perfectly for these immense political debates about walling and all this stuff. You know, frankly, when I started the project, the border was really kind of an esoteric subject in political science, and uh, you know, it took nine years from that. Um, moment for it to become published, but you know, boy did the timing work out. But anyway, that's a separate well question. And I exactly. I feel like this kind of weird, uh, you know, like prescient hero in this story, which is absurd because in fact I was just a grad student who was basically bored of what he was reading. And I but anyway, so I decided I wanted to actually go and to go to the border and start to do what became an ethnography. Uh, and I started to develop A you know way of thinking about entering political theory debates uh, that use this you know very different kind of method than political theorists usually use, which is ethnography. And uh, uh, I've to to her credit, uh, Shayla, my advisor was very warm to the idea, but she wanted me to uh, take on an ethnographer, someone who can really help in that way. And because I was fortunate enough to be at Yale, where Jim Scott was a professor. Uh, he agreed to be co-chair on the project. And they had a so we had sort of a, an interesting compromise, which is that you know Shayla was really willing to take on the project and sign off on the theory if uh, she didn't have to look at the ethnography. And Jim was willing to take on the ethnography if he didn't have to look at the theory. And everybody was really happy with this. And so it ended up that I was able to go and spend quite a lot of time at the border uh, to see whether or not Changing the way we see a border, thinking of it institutionally, uh, changes the kind of questions we can ask about it um, beyond the sort of in-out, friend-enemy binary, which of course has come back with a vengeance in our political life, but that's a, a separate issue. And in fact, you find that borders are immensely complicated, immensely interesting spaces. And what it means to manage a border in a just fashion is just as interesting a normative question uh, and just as interesting for political theorists uh, as you know, the question of whether or not there's a right to exclude, so to speak. And so, in fact, I went and began the ethnography. And the ethnography uh, didn't stay at the border because I think that, like any naive person, because again, I was quite naive, my idea of the border, of the ethnography, was literally just to go to the border and see what happens. Uh, it turns out that most bordering, uh, doesn't happen at the border. It happens very far away. It happens in offices in Washington. That's not that surprising. Uh, but it also happens in uh, these very interesting bazaars, uh, which are essentially where tech developers meet up with uh, state officials. And the state sort of says, hey, this is what we're looking for. This is what we need. This is the way we envision bordering in five years. And tech developer says, this is what we have, and this is what we can do. And, uh, you know, handshakes occur, and, uh, you know, trades are, are hammered out, etc. And uh, the outcome of that is that suddenly the trade expos became a place I realized were where bordering as a vision sort of took uh, took hold or found its sort of concrete manifestation. And this was super interesting to me. So then, this required me to, for one thing, follow along these uh, security expos, um, but also it meant going and talking to people that work in in tech development that design algorithms, uh, not just the guys on the line with their, you know, their jeeps and their guns. But bordering is a much bigger enterprise, and. Uh so anyways such was the the birth of the project that suddenly I thought okay now I'm going to go spend a lot of time figure out what a border actually is and then come back and see if I can at the very least ask new questions and uh hopefully more than that hopefully actually you know create new ways of thinking about how we can create yeah just borders more democratic border spaces uh and what implication these empirical changes are having for uh, important concepts like sovereignty and citizenship um, that we kind of – and this is going to sound glib, I don't mean it to – but often uh, throw around or speak about as though it's still the 19th century, as though we're still thinking of borders and states in a fairly static model that um, certainly the tech revolution and the use of data in statecraft has fundamentally altered and if we as political thinkers, not just political theorists, but any kind of political thinker, want to be able to comment critically on uh, what's happening, you know, we better start with the right um, set of facts. So. Anyways, that's the, that's the origin story of the project.
0: And it's a really interesting project in terms of pulling in aspects, as you say, you know, you sort of think of the border as the places that you see on the map, um, or as you describe it also in the introduction, the Westphalian sort of concept of nations and where they stop and start, Um and again in a cartographer's mind as opposed to what actually happens as you you know go through border control with your passport and what that experience is like, which you interrogate and really sort of open the book in the preface, um, which I was also intrigued by. Uh, it's it's not the norm to read a political science, political theory book that has a preface um, of your own experiences sort of crossing borders. Um, but I wanted to get to this question, as you note in the sort of early stages of the book, that globalization and global mobility, not just refugees, but sort of the move towards openness across borders for people and goods, um, the transporting of things and individuals has also made borders more critical. Um, And so openness has actually proved to sort of limit. Um, can you speak to that sort of broad thesis and area of introduction to your text?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, in terms of wanting to situate the text in my own experience, I think that, um, more or less, as I said in in the origin story bit, I think it's very important to, uh, explain or situate where one's coming from. And, Because you know intuitions don't come out of nowhere, and I've had the experience um, of being uh, detained at borders many times. In part because before I ever joined graduate school and became a political theorist, I worked for many years in the Middle East, and I would come back. And just you know the smell of the Middle East on you, and you get you get sent straight to secondary, which is you know you know we can say what we will about whether that's a prudent policy, but experientially it completely changed what you think uh, a border is as a as a social paradigm, knowing that this is the experience of lots of people, and you know obviously academics don't necessarily uh, aren't necessarily the kind of people that get detained. But because I had the experience of being quite frequently detained, once even being taken off an airplane um, by police, um, because I had come back from from Yemen, which is sort of, you know, it's like, it's like suspicion 101. And uh, I was essentially a suspicious package, right? And uh, the fact that I had all these experiences seemed uh, necessary as a way of bringing people into the book, because I think it really does force the question, right, if you start with this experience that is somehow familiar, even to people that haven't been themselves detained, even just through the news, uh, the fact that our theories can't speak to that or don't speak to that uh, suddenly becomes much clearer. So I guess that's the way I I would talk about that um, beginning. In terms of globalization, yeah, I think that there is this logic that you know, and this is again. It's going to sound. I don't. I don't. I don't mean it to sound um, uh, to be an overstatement, but there is a way that we're so often chasing the time in academia, in part because you know publishing takes a long time, and and we're also thoughtful people, and that's also a good thing, right? But there is a sense that you know the euphoria of globalization led people to believing in this story of a borderless world that uh, we kept thinking about and writing about far. Longer perhaps than the border had any, uh, you know, borderless characteristics. So maybe there was a sort of '90s moment where openness was becoming a, a norm or normalized. Uh, and if you want to make a clear marker, you can say that certainly after 9/11, uh, there was we went from you know debordering uh, to rebordering. The idea that suddenly the reencasement of the sovereign uh, territory was you know the thing, and uh, but even that, you know, there's a way that uh, it took us a while to get our mind around what that meant. Um, we in the intellectual community, academic community, but I think also broadly as a public, I don't think it was so clear exactly. Uh, whether a state could halt globalization, how it was doing so, what was the significance of this move towards walling? Was it anything different than, uh, so to use Wendy Brown's way of thinking about it, essentially the the last gasp of sovereignty, trying to reclaim a thing that was lost? And um, I mean, I think her book, uh, Waning Waning States, uh, sorry, Walled States and Waning Sovereignty, which came out in twenty ten, and was really the first cut um, in thinking about borders. Uh, represented a certain way of carrying the insights of the 90s into the present. Um, and uh, This book sort of takes as its launching point that I don't think that's the right way of going about thinking about it in the sense that there are sort of uh, timeless problems, which is that there is a uh, an issue of how states manage mobilities, uh, but there is also such a thing as territoriality in the sense that there is a, a state's imperative to – mark or guard its territory and the question is not whether or not borders are becoming more porous but whether the fact that states in attempting to manage porous borders are actually somehow changing and for me the insight uh there uh was really drawn i guess most cleanly by examples through through data and the rise of data management that what was happening was uh states were were Realizing that it couldn't totally control uh, border passage, but that didn't mean that states were ending. You know, there was this whole '90s euphoria about how uh, the end of the nation state, this kind of thing. And uh, if anything, what's borne out is that what the the crisis of modernity is the situation of two facts: that there are stable states and stable populations, and also global factors, and how we find ourselves. Uh, adapting to or positioning ourselves against um, one of these two poles, I think, is the question that states are grappling with. Um, so, anyways the the uh, beginning the beginning of thinking about globalization. Then for me, was this was move of thinking that it wasn't either about uh, debordering, which was a kind of a, a keyword for globalization, or rebordering, which became sort of a keyword for securitization. Another one of these academic tag words uh but actually there was something else happening uh which is what i describe as co-bordering and uh the the answer i give for how states in fact have changed or have begun to adapt to globalization is by collaborating in other words despite all the rhetoric about walls and all the the pervasive sense that the world is becoming um you know more and more with entrenched sovereign states closing themselves down uh this this logic has a sort of power to it in the fantastical sense something that Wendy Brown does an excellent job of describing the fantasy of walling uh, as a fantasy of exclusion and safety uh, but in fact on the ground what states have done is realize they actually can't under conditions of globalization control their borders alone and so what they're doing is even as they might be rhetorically talking about walling or even you know walling in some cases uh, worldwide what states are actually doing is collaborating because what they've realized is and this is again the intuition we all had in the 90s which is the idea that the globalization was a threat to the nation state it's true nation states heard this and nation states realized that actually to protect states or statehood states had to start collaborating and what that meant is that you have basically states are deciding to align forces in controlling their own borders and controlling the managing of, of mobilities against those borders. And the way I describe that in the book is I think there's a sort of a um, an epochal shift that's occurred in the the nature of the border, which is that we've gone from the Westphalian system, which is very familiar and also matches the cartographic uh, the cartographic system, uh, which says that you know at a border, one state meets another state. So, the function of a border is to be where one army or one state's face uh, meets another's. And that already began changing in the 19th century um, with the rise of globalization, but certainly was powerful through the era of globalization, uh, which is that the border stopped really being a place uh, where states met other states, but became the place where states managed mobilities. And this can be a subject of taxation. It's about making sure that money doesn't leave. It can also be about, about migrants and refugees and drugs and guns and all of the things that might be controlled. But so the second epoch we think of as uh, one in which the state became, became a filter. And my argument here is that we've actually sort of entered a not a, a return to the first, but a third, a wholly different epoch, right? Which is where states don't meet each other at the border or manage my mobilities at the border, but actually align forces to manage mobility at the border. And this is a wholly different kind of state that changes what we think sovereignty is. In fact, right? so in some ways, states are actually ceding certain classic markers of sovereignty uh, for the sake of security. It's also changing what we think uh, – uh the the concerns are right so what what is the concern of statehood when you have essentially fattened border zones or overlapping border domains uh we can start asking very very different questions about about ways in which we should be normatively concerned right so the fact that states you know are collaborating sounds very. Uh, nice in a frank cosmopolitan way, like, oh, it's great, states are collaborating. But in fact, states, as we all know, are asymmetric in their power. That means the capacity for states to use co-bordering measures as ways in which they can essentially take over lands, but also run uh, borderland areas of other states, uh, maybe to the detriment of those peoples, but certainly not to their democratic representation, and um, and uh, we might, you know, doubt whether that's good, just in terms of states, but also you might doubt whether or not it's really good that states are essentially maximizing their own ability to control and manage migrants um, or mobilities, let's say. And so, in fact, the question is whether or not, uh, in thinking about, uh, in thinking about globalization as being sort of, you know, the the mo- the the clash between mobility and statehood, we've missed this other development, which is that actually the whole system is shifting. And the example I give in the book uh, that I think really just distills this is uh, the example of Shiprider. And so, you know, it starts in the US-Canada border because basically everything is piloted in the US-Canada border, in part because it's quiet and easy. Uh, it's very nice to pilot things in quiet places so that then when you bring them to Mexico, you know they work. Um, it's kind of a governing u uh, s state logic, and so it was piloted in Canada, and Shipwriter is a very simple concept, right? Shipwriter says uh, how do you solve the problem of the border? The problem of the border is, of course, that if a state just controls its own border, all you have to do if you're like, you know, the bad guy with with drugs. He's crossed the border and the state has to stop chasing you. You know, it's a little bit like old westerns where like all you had to do was get to the county line and the sheriff couldn't chase after you. You know, borders are actually impediments to law enforcement, right? They're real pains and they're really a pain for strong states, which of course is what's so perverse about the U.S. talking about walling. You know, in fact, strong states – would love to go beyond their borders. They don't want to stop at their border, and so ship rider basically set up a system where Americans would ride Canadian ships and Canadians would ride American ships, and they would each have their own law enforcement capacity. So all it would all it would take is for the, the you know in this to use this silly language you know the bad guy to cross the border, but the ship wouldn't have to stop. They could just keep chasing it. They had solved the problem of the border. All it took was some collaboration. And that model exists on every level of the of the of the government it exists in data it exists on the ground it exists in water it exists in u s mexico in places you'd never imagine. we're talking about uh like joint tunnel stings and uh you know joint helicopter rides. It happens in uh the oddest places around the world uh you know for example in the in the, in the Sinai uh Israel and egypt collaborate over the border. Why? Because the thing that scares Israel most is Islamic terrorism, and the thing that scares the secular Egyptian authorities most is Islamic terrorism, and it's totally rational to collaborate. But so this whole world is shifting around us, around this very rational way of utilizing the tools of the globalized world toward the end of buffering state security. Insofar as we keep talking about sovereignty in this very Westphalian way, or citizenship in this very Westphalian way, we're missing the boat. All we can really say is states have gotten stronger or weaker. Um, so, anyways, the, the the point of the book uh in that sense, I realize that was a long-winded answer, um, is to uh yeah, is to is to get out of that um, I guess, paradigmatic or conceptual um trap.
0: And that I mean, and that sort of trap or that structure is one that it's very difficult to sort of leave because we're so used to it not only in, you know, in the passports that we carry um, and the way that we think about going from the United States to Canada or the United States to Great Britain. But as we look at Brexit, you know, this seems to be, again, a sort of endemic problem in conceptualization um, that we have states uh, and they have integrity because they're sovereign and. Um, And yet, there is this sort of cooperation and porousness about that sovereignty with regard to maintaining the sovereignty. Um, which is what I think you know. Your book is sort of trying to unpack and 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 have readers think about theorists and and political scientists and border experts and the intelligence community. Um, and so I wanted to sort of ask you a little bit about you know how you drew together, in a sense, different aspects of research, research protocols, a theorist usually doesn't do field research except to go to a library someplace else. Um, but you did a variety of different kinds of quote field research. Can you talk a little bit about how that sort of contributed to the book itself? And you're thinking about the concept of borders?
1: Sure. And I will, uh, let me do it by way of a, of a concrete example. So, uh, one of the things that happens when you get into the thick of the border institution is you start to realize so much of this is about data and the way that data is changing statecraft. And uh, I think that the clearest conceptual purchase of this ends up being uh, with, sorry, excuse me, a fire engine ran outside the window, uh, a uh, with, with uh, vis-a-vis citizenship. So I went out into the field and I ended up meeting and interviewing and talking with, data analysts and algorithm designers and those kind of people that live in the in the in the numbers so to speak and one of the major things you learn in talking to these people is there's been an overhaul in thinking about what matters in terms of whether a state lets someone in to the country and it used to be that the major determinant of whether you were let into the country had to do with nation or passport and what's happened is that now it's about risk rating. How risky is a person? And it's yeah. not that nation doesn't matter, you know, certainly being an American helps you get into America, so to speak, but only sort of, in the sense that, you know, being an Arab American, you are by nature riskier than, for example, in the example I use in the book. It's very like, you know, it's a very bald example, but you know, you're you're jet-setting Swiss banker. Has an easier time getting into JFK than, you know, an Arab American that makes phone calls to his family in, you know, in wherever, in Jordan, uh, having nothing to do with anything about nation, right? Citizenship doesn't help this person, right? In fact, citizenship is functionally irrelevant. What matters is risk rating. And you'd like to think that, that citizenship would be an, a factor into risk rating. And in some sense it is. It's just very, very low down the line we're now in a world in which what determines whether you're welcome isn't necessarily membership into the community and a lot of this began immediately after 9/11 the example famously uh comes from uh Accenture the you know we think of them as a consulting company but they're a huge data analytics firm you know they had this very famous reaction after 9/11 when the state when you know our state was in panic about what to do and 9 sorry, Accenture's reaction was to say, No, don't worry about it. We have the kind of data capabilities, and this is 2001, right? A long time ago. We've gotten a, a lot farther since then. We have the capabilities that if you, in the same month, bought 200 pounds of fertilizer and called Pakistan, we know who you are. And, you know, half of the country went, Oh, great, fantastic. Another half went, Oh, that's terrible right? I mean, this crazy uh, threat to civil liberties. But what that means is for those of us that are thinking more in, in uh, conceptual terms in political theory is it's changing what citizenship means, right? And you get that insight by talking to the algorithm designers and understanding that you know, what might seem like the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest decision about how you modify your algorithm Might make it so, you know, 99.99% of people get through without being stopped, or 99.98% of people get through without being stopped means that, you know, 100,000 people might now get flagged uh, and put into secondary or detained, or frankly, much, much worse, as we've seen with, um, you know, in a very extreme case, uh, stories of detainees and, you know, people that came for asylum and ended up locked up. or I, I mean, You get a little bit of this now with our discussions of child detention. Um, but in fact, worldwide, people are being um, detained without particularly much um, legal protection. Anyways, that's sort of an aside. But the point for me is perhaps more simple, which is that that distinction of whether or not you privilege civil liberties or security, right? whether or not you make 100,000 people get caught, flagged or not flagged, is essentially the new way to think about the challenge of freedom or liberty vis-a-vis state in the, the world we live in. And this is precisely the kind of thing that a political theorist should be prepared or able to talk about. And yet, I don't know that we think of the question of liberty yet in those terms. Right. And now I don't know that we totally understand the implication of algorithmic thinking in statecraft as the challenge of political theory. And so the answer to your question, again, I realize slightly long-winded unintentionally, uh, is to say that, you know, you go to the field, or at least what I do is I went to the field, I spoke to people, and it basically led me down these trails. And uh the outcome of which was I hope opening up lots of new questions. And I also hope, you know, answering some of them, right? Providing ways of thinking about what the actual concern is, right? What is the locus of normative concern? And then trying to think through models or ways to approach um, addressing it. And I think that this example of citizenship kind of uh, distills that or the benefit of the approach. Uh, and I should add, just before transitioning, uh, there's another political theorist right now who's um, become a friend of mine because we have had um, overlapping um, intuitions in this, which is Bernardo Zacca, whose book came out the year before mine. Uh, it's called When the State Meets the Street. and He did a similar thing where he felt he had questions about, in this case, the, the, the moral, moral agency of frontline bureaucrats and actually pursued an ethnography to um, look at the question of bureaucracy from the ground – and discuss whether that um, can actually lead to productive debate in political theory. And so the hope is actually that this book um, that I've written, along with his book, can help galvanize some interest in political theorists, uh, not just being in archives, as important as that is, um, but also doing things like, you know, Talking to people,
0: which is always a good thing as a political scientist, I think. Um,
1: well, also we, we should say, as we discuss, we talk on a podcast, obviously, you know, we're performatively exactly. agreeing. Exactly.
0: Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the role of technology, and as you say, sort of big data, um, and these bazaars that you talk about in the book that are really where decisions and f- thinking is actually going on about borders and ultimately citizenship and questions of sovereignty. Can you explain a little bit more about, you know, sort of falling down that rabbit hole, if you will, and seeing how and where sort of policy decisions are being made? Sort of not by policymakers necessarily.
1: Yeah, certainly, and certainly not with any kind of democratic process or oversight. Uh, the idea that that the security biz uh, is outside of uh, any kind of democratic oversight should actually terrify exactly. us. But that's a, a separate, a slightly separate question. But in terms of the, of the of the rabbit hole, um, yeah, no. Look, the rabbit hole—I I was caught in for years. I uh, what you find? Yes, exactly. I think that you find. Uh, or at least what I found that was interesting is we have this idea of the state that it's kind of a machinery and uh, we can ask ways in which, you know, it might be governed by better or more just procedures, um, et cetera. But there's a way we take what the state is to be fixed. And I think what was most interesting to me about actually attending these basically like, you know, sausage making, meetings, right? Where, I mean, it really is exceptionally rough. I mean, it is the state saying this is what we need and then tech saying this is what we have. And those two don't meet, right? You have to make them meet. You have to really work at finding solutions to problems, uh, being hammered out with, um, you know, conversations, but also very much on the fly and very much based on, Uh, a little bit of hope and prayer, right? A little bit of, this is this need we have, it's desperate, let's see if this thing works, right? Let's throw the money at the solution and see what comes of it, but in fact what was interesting for me is uh, it's actually changing what the state is and what the state does, and this is this thing that I think is hard for um, uh, either us to get our minds around in terms of uh, any kind of political theory logic, in the sense that it isn't obvious that sure we can make these uh, you know these processes of border management more democratic. Something I talk about in the book, um, and certainly we can talk about how all of these uh, kind of security issues that we too frequently accept are sort of you know we often accept as a public too cleanly that issues of security are sort of beyond democratic representation, uh, maybe because it involves certain kinds of clearance or certain kinds of secrets or et cetera. Um, So I think we might be a little bit too, you know, um, tolerant uh, of that. But but I actually mean it on on a somewhat different level, which is that I think that we take the shape of the polity to be a constant. And what I've learned through – this very radical change in the way states have physical contours in the sense that borders are becoming these binational zones of you know cross border management that are becoming fatter in certain places and thinner in others and overlapping in certain places and for different peoples having different rules and right I mean in fact the the physical contours of the state are totally changing uh, but because of data in fact uh, all of the state citizen relations are changing, and what a state is is changing uh, in the sense that a lot of state decision making happens in areas that are are are, are delocated um, from you know, let's say the center of, of decision making. and uh, to give an idea of why I think that matters. So I think, so let me, let, me, let me put this. I, I like the way you phrased the question, where you sort of wanted me to, to link it the, the, the outcome to the method. So one of the most interesting conversations I had with, was with a um, data analyst who talked was kind of, "Let me engage big think questions." because you know these open-ended conversations uh, with these people often get very intimate, and you, you ideally let them think out loud. You let them think about what they think are the big issues. Um, of the future, the big issues facing these um, these changes, and one of the one of the insights uh, that one of these data analysts had was really interesting, which is that in fact the better way to think of the, the of the future of, of statecraft is not to think of states at all, but actually to think only as security analysts already do, which is through data profiles. Meaning, uh, there certainly are already bifurcations of good and bad that uh, all states share the data they share the databases they share and uh, those determinants of risky or unrisky uh, will determine not just whether you can travel but even what rights and you know privileges you have in the place you reside. And his point was actually that you know even that we can sort of think of in this state rubric uh, that, Okay, their states are constant and some people's profiles are riskier than others. Fine. But actually where this is going is towards the – if we think as a state does, um, to use Jim Scott's famous phrase, to see like a state, uh, what the state's actually concerned with isn't even the risky people, right? Those are (laughs) – I'm going to use Stupid Donald Rumsfeld as a um, as a as an inspiration here, but no, those I'm are known. known. <laughs> guy, I mean, the, the guy who you already know is risky is actually not that threatening to the state. The ones you don't know, it's, well, and in particular, the person about whom you have no data. And so, what's happening is that uh, there's sort of a new global bifurcation that's very slowly forming around. People, risky or otherwise, around whom there are data profiles, and people around whom there is no data—you know, data cloud or data um, shadow, depending on how uh, positive you want your metaphor to be. And uh, what that means is that actually, those people reside anywhere. They can be in the middle of Western states, people that have gone off the grid, so to speak. But more often, they're in pockets. Um, around the world, but these don't conform whatsoever to states or citizen uh, boundary lines. They only exist uh, in these sort of algorithmic networks. And in that sense, thinking about this threat—the threat of the unknown unknowns—or whatever you call them—I um, don't know why I'm trying to channel Tom <laughs> Well, uh,
0: nobody's done it for uh, a while, so
1: uh, you should. <laughs> you know, you know, some some things, some statements are just so are just so yes. perfect, it's hard to let go of them. Um, and, uh, But anyways, so, so the question is whether or not, as we sort of try to engage big think about the way statecraft is going, whether we have to completely sever the idea of states as having one-to-one relationship with citizens and states as having unitary centers, and in fact start thinking, as data analysts already do, as there being sort of one data collection one world of data in which you're in or you're out and because data is already shared literally by everyone and all of that information is part of these joint um you know already plugged in data networks uh it's it's forcing us to ask question about whether we can even call a state a state anymore and i think this is what really gets me interested because and i don't you know the book you know obviously it's only a 200 page book. I mean, you can't go anywhere near um, fully approaching these questions. Uh, And I think that we're sort of, uh, as usual, going to end up having to adapt to what happens. You know, we have to see how it goes. But the kind of big thing that data is forcing upon us um, about the future of civil liberties and the future of the the citizen sovereign relation and the future of security um, are what I hope the book, you know, cracks open a bit. Um,
0: So, and I think it does. I mean, I think I think you definitely lead the reader in that direction um, to to wonder about like, okay, well, what happens next? Yeah, because a lot of this is really at, at the beginning,
1: and I think there's a way that uh, a, a more cautious academic maybe wouldn't have tackled some of this stuff because you know in the, in the beginning of the book I refer to this as speculative theory which I realize is kind of a um, you know I wanted to signal to people
0: science fiction it's a little
1: bit, right I mean you know that I, I refer to that particular question we just talked about as the digital dark about the right. idea of darkness at the edge of the map and I uh, I want I want to signal to readers that uh if you're going what you're gonna get out of the book, I hope, uh, is both very concrete things about things I've observed, right? About, you know, changes to, again, the, the nature of law enforcement at the periphery or the nature of citizenship or the nature of uh data governance, all of which are present facts. But I didn't want to hem myself in from being able to start to ask questions I think will matter. And so I kind of ask of the reader a little bit of forbearance um towards the end of the book about saying, you know, as we progress the baseline of facts that i physically saw and can verify uh at the end of each chapter i try to uh open it up a bit and say well let's think thinking on our feet given this material uh what new questions even beyond the ones i've already asked might interest us and i do think that that's um, sort of the, the the purchase of the book right now, especially because now that borders are central to our imaginary, and we have, of course, returned to very simplistic language of in and out, and state and barbarian, and blah, blah, blah. And wall. And wall you know, good old brick, medieval wall. Uh, I think it is so important that we not let uh, the return of that imaginary to take us away from What I think we had begun to crack into uh, of what was actually happening, because the disconnect between the political rhetoric about borders and the empirical fact about states uh, couldn't be more divergent.
0: And I think that's, I mean, that is one of the key aspects of your book and your sort of Research that I found most interesting that like, you know, again, we've went we've just been through 35 days talking about the wall um, and the border um, and your book is like, well, that's fine and dandy, but that's actually not what's really going on.
1: Yeah, it's also not what is concerning to our nation or or any nation right now in terms of its security. What's so perverse to me, you know, I'll read one of the quotes in the book, if I may, uh, about uh uh that really I think brings home the perversity of thinking that the challenge we face as, you know, sovereign states really would be solved by a wall. I'm gonna read a quote um from a from a data tech expert at the Chertoff group about um but data, right? So uh, the quote is, and this came out of one of the interviews. When we used to collect data from national sensors, a centrally run set of intelligence institutions would do quality control the data, and then the data would feed the algorithm, which would feed the decision making process. Right? Basic. That's the past. We used to collect our own data from national sensors, put it into our own algorithms. That gave us, you know, a totally controlled national sovereign outcome. Okay, so he continues. But if we're not using centrally controlled and collected data anymore, how are we addressing the data quality issue? I would argue we don't know how to do this. So this is literally, this is the state. This is a state official saying Is the sampling random? Is the data intentionally biased? Maybe the government of China is feeding us data to mislead us. We need to develop the ability to detect bias in data, whether it be intentional bias or simply misleading. The fact that the state is so concerned that its own algorithms, its own decision-making process of data-led statecraft is unable to fully understand the sourcing of data, to weigh the data, to evaluate the data, because there's simply so much. And so much of it comes from either foreign sources or uh, national but non-sovereign sources, meaning like corporate sources. Uh, is really an arresting fact, and uh, you know, trying to put this into the language of the present, uh, the the person is telling us the great threat to sovereignty comes from the fact that we haven't dedicated enough resources into understanding the power that you know data craft or the hold it has on states, and then you juxtapose that kind of intuition beside our president yapping about a wall and thinking of the wall as though it really were, you know, like like a like a ceramic basin to keep water in, right? Um is yeah, it's really arresting. And and I've started writing um some popular pieces about it. I just wrote two pieces for the Boston Review, uh trying to uh yeah, to make into a slightly more popular format those concerns, because I think it's nice that an academic book raises them, and certainly I think I wrote it hoping that not just academics would read it, although those hopes are always a little bit, you know, far off. Um, uh, but anyways, but so I've also tried to extend beyond the academy in that, because I do think that given this moment of acute interest, we now have the ears. And once you have the ears, you know, maybe you can whisper something sensible into them. Uh, because, you know, attention in politics is very fickle. So if you don't take it when you have it, you know, it goes, goes by pretty quick.
0: That's true. So on on all of these threads, many of which are continuing from the book, what are you working on now? What's your next project?
1: So against all possible wisdom, uh, I've decided not to make another book about borders uh, in the present, despite the fact that, of course, I've now spent a year building up a market and interested readers and me being a contemporary border expert, uh, and have decided instead to start a uh, historical project about the final days of the Iron Curtain and the moral agency uh, of border guards who were faced with conditions of legal uncertainty as the borders around them started to fall and had to decide whether or not to Take it upon themselves to enforce the law or reject it. And in a way, a lot of these people who had, again, been, you know, the Iron Curtain was the scariest border in the world. Um, uh, A lot of these people had been the bad guy, you know, the guys with guns at the border. And then as it crumbled around them, they started to essentially let people through or turn their back or start to, in a way, uh, uh, let the institution fall. And uh, there's something very interesting about that because I find we usually think of that through the opposite lens uh, given to us by Arendt with Eichmann in Jerusalem. You know, the idea that part of the impossibility of the Holocaust came from people like Eichmann who followed the law because it was the law, even if it was unjust. And to inquire into people with those same choices who are in different ways deciding whether to follow the law or not, and deciding whether or not they thought it was just, uh, strikes me as a really interesting uh, departure from Eichmann. And so – yeah, so I think I'm kind of following the Zorrentian thread right now um, about, yeah, what it means to to obey the law when one has a conscience uh, that deviates from it and in particular what one does in conditions of uncertainty when not just one doesn't know what the law is but whether even the state system will hold. Um, so in some sense, it follows threads from the first book. Obviously, it's about borders in some way uh, and it also questions about the, the shape of states but on another end, it really is taking me back to the '80s, and that's uh, interesting. So, anyways, that's the new project. I've just begun it, um, and although I will continue to write uh, both academic articles and hopefully some more um, popular articles about um, the present, because I think that I don't want to uh, totally surrender um, all of these insights to, you know, its book encasement. Um, if in fact there are still audiences, so I'm just kind of having a two pronged approach. Let's well,
0: I, I hope you'll come back on the New Books Network when the book on the Cold War um, is completed. Um, I look forward yeah, to talking yeah. to you about that. And I hope you'll have me. Happy to. Um, so I would like to thank you, Matthew Longo, for joining me today to talk about the politics of borders, sovereignty, security, and the citizen after 9 11, published by Cambridge University Press. Um, Any place anybody can pick up your book, Matthew.
1: So, unfortunately, brick-and-mortar stores do not tend to help me out, Uh, despite my having tried extensively to get them to uh, stock it. The one that I'm confident uh, does hold it as a brick-and-mortar establishment is McNally Jackson in New York, which I'm very proud about. Um, They actually allowed me to host a book reading, which was really a spectacular um, feeling. And so I therefore feel immensely loyal to them, um, as anyone does to places that help you. And uh, so, yes, everyone should go there. But if not, it's available, of course, uh, at CUP and Amazon.
0: Thank you. And thanks a lot for joining me today.
1: Okay, thank you.